This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Welcome in to Film Tank. As per usual, Alex Diegman here with you, along with my usual co-host, Nick Cheney. <laughs> that was my Hannibal Lecter impression. Yeah, that was, that was... Reacting that, 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 to... That was good. Some Chianti. Yeah. He's... Yep. <laughs> Doesn't quite do it, it, it without being able to see the teeth, but, you know, just imagine. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew what you were going for, so you know what? That's half the battle. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Also with us today, uh, and uh, I don't want to say the, the sole reason, but definitely the driver behind the film we're going to talk about beep, beep. being on this episode is our good friend, Anna Bodizadu. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Hi. Anna. Hi there, Nick. Oh, uh... you guys are adorable. <laughs> anyway <laughs> so the film we're going to talk about on this episode is a classic film for sure um and just shows the depth of uh the history of film as you know this is a film and this happens a lot when i tell people whether we did an episode on something and they are surprised that we're 240 something men and we haven't done it yet. And I'm like, we've done a lot, a lot of shit, there. though. We have. And I mean, shit. <laughs> well, we've done some. I mean, you know, when someone asks, you know, what, 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 you know, you, you've done these films, like, well, we do a lot of, like, not random films, but yeah. like even like lesser films, like Crimson Peak is a good example. Sorry, Sam. Uh, uh, the, uh, it's a great movie. I just rewatched it for Halloween. Did you? That's great. There's some parts of it I like, but it, it, it like looking back at our catalog of episodes, it is kind of random to see things like that. You're like, oh yeah, that's a movie. Well, I think the other thing too is that the breakdown of what we do is pivoted mostly towards new releases. So like, not that we won't do an older movie, but like at the time when theaters were a thing, it was basically we go to the theater to go see a movie and do the episode, and if there was nothing at the theater, then we would do an old movie. Yeah, I mean, it was like, I don't know. It was probably we did a new movie every two out of three episodes, every yeah. three out of four, maybe. I don't know. That sounds about right, based yeah. on what I when I scroll through the episodes. Mm-hmm. At any rate. Uh, we are going to do a film which is most certainly thought of as a classic by most people, and that is 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. It's my birth year. 
Woo! All right. Yeah. Two two great things that year. (laughs) The film was directed by Jonathan. Is it is it Dem or Demay? Demi. 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 I got it wrong twice. Uh, Jonathan Demi, who uh, did a lot of uh, good work in his career, uh, and probably is most well-known for this film. Uh, And the film stars Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling, and also stars Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. The film also features appearances by Scott Glenn, uh, who, by the way, is super underrated in almost everything he's in, um, and has other people showing up, including Anthony Heald, and also, uh, oh, Ted Ted Levine, I almost forgot, uh, who plays Jane Gum, uh, who ends up being uh, the person who uh, is the serial killer. So, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Silence of the Lambs surrounds a young FBI cadet who must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. <laughs> uh, I will say, uh, I'll just come on and say it, this is the first time I had ever seen Silence of the, the Silence of the Lambs. Um, so I feel like I should not be the person to lead off this discussion. So I will let you two duke it out for who gets first dibs. So I'm also in the same boat as you, Alex. Part of why I suggested this film is because I had never seen it before. Um, and I was actually really happy to hear that you hadn't seen it either. Um, it's also on my scratch off, um, poster. Um, right on. You're still working on that, huh? I'm still working on it, and I actually sent the little icon to all of you, uh, to all of you guys. And the little yeah, icon um, is uh, Hannibal in the mask. So I thought that yeah, was super cool. Yeah. So um, I will actually pass it off to Nick because I assume you have seen this more than once. I have. Well, actually, this was my second time. But uh, there you go. Yeah, I will. I will uh, get this ball rolling. I think this movie is fantastic um it is definitely one of those movies where i think the first time you watch it uh with so many years removed from the original context and when it came out it may seem underwhelming but i personally think um that it is the bedrock for so many things that are happening today as far as our fascination with this uh you know serial killer phenomenon and true crime and whatnot and honestly, honestly, Jonathan Demi uh, just is a crackerjack director. I mean, he could basically take just about any genre and run with it. And um, I mean, he's obviously, besides this, he was the director of things like the concert film from Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense. He was, uh, yeah, I know, right? Uh, he started out as an exploitation filmmaker working for New World Pictures which with uh, Roger Corman. Um, so, and I think Silence of a Lamb is actually an extension of that, not like a m- maturation, because I think The Silence of a Lamb is kind of an exploitation movie. Uh, it's just got this weirdly adult and polished veneer to it that I think sucked so many people in to the point where it was actually, uh, you know, a contender for the Oscars to where it actually won, right? Best Picture in 1991, I think. 
anybody. Yeah, on the um, on the page, if you look up this film, it actually did a sweep of all of the major categories, including Best Picture. So wait for the Oscars. It looks like Dances with Wolves. Maybe for the Golden Globes. No, no, no. Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture, Best Actor, Best. Uh, leading actress, best director, and Why best screenwriter. Google, you know, like Google when you, is lying. To I know, you. but you know, like when you Google something, and it's like Google's here's like. The only thing, here's the only thing I'll say: Are yeah. you searching for the 1991 Oscars? Oh yeah, that's why. Because I'm guessing Dances with yeah. Wolves was a 1990 film that won in the right, 91 right, right. awards. That's yeah, that, so that, that has, stupid. Uh, done it to me a couple times. Yeah, and well. I was like, "Why well, no? Dancing with Wolves did win." So I'm like, "Wait, what?" But okay, mm-hmm. that makes a lot. Also, of really randomly, um, and, I mean, I know that the film climate was, you know, obviously different in 1991, but I was pretty surprised that this was a February release. Like, uh, yeah, this, yeah. Oh, sure. you know, mm-hmm. this is released during the the real dead season for movies. Um, so kind of kind of surprised by that, but I mean. Maybe it's kind of hard to grasp that in the current Hannibal landscape that we live in, where that's been, I don't want to say overdone, but um, has clearly created a genre pretty much of its own. Uh, Where at the time, I'm guessing that even though I do know there was a film about Hannibal Lecter that came out before, which starred someone... Uh, I believe it's Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that's Man um, Manhunter. Yeah, which is uh, fantastic. Too. Was... I'd love Isn't to it? see that because I love Brian Cox. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's actually in the same wrong. exact capacity as like what Lecter is in this, which is not about him. In fact, he's probably even even less than Hopkins is. Okay, but even anyway. so, but... I'm intrigued. Oh, it's still great. Yeah. At any rate, um, clearly it was not the same franchise at that time than it was now. But even so, I was still very surprised that this got a early spring, late winter release. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's the thing, though, is like the fact that it did win Best Picture and swept the Oscars. I mean, that's like the last time a horror movie actually gained sentience and 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 won awards and actually you know like my mother saw this movie when it came out and like she wouldn't go out of her way to see a movie like this today today it would be me telling her she needs to watch it you know because she doesn't do these kinds of movies so it, it just speaks to i think how wonderfully directed this movie is and obviously the performances in general are fantastic across the board but I think what I most relish in when I rewatch it and watch it these days is that what's technically on the surface of just a pretty thrilling cat and mouse game, you know, between detectives and, uh, you know, psychopaths and whatnot, uh, is also kind of burying the lead about how this is actually just a workplace drama and how Jodie Foster is essentially. Um, not in any way a stand-in because she's her own character and has her own agency. In fact, that's kind of her whole story is proving that. Um, But the undercurrent of what sexism in the workplace looks like and how she has to prove herself despite the fact that, um, you know, her male counterparts don't. And the editing and the cinematography all kind of swirl together to really drive this home. I mean, there's some 
fantastic shots throughout, whether it's the uh, early shot in the elevator where she stands and she's completely dwarfed by all the men in the elevator and she's wearing a, the exact opposite color and they're hovering over her and she's like, you know, already kind of in this almost uh, unspokenly violent male culture that she's also in charge of investigating and bringing to justice. And it's kind of like, how do you make that your life's work uh, while you're also technically, uh, you know, in it. Uh, and it's like, you know, getting feed, uh, pushback and whatnot from both these criminals and also the people you work with. And and it's funny because the movie doesn't go, like, super hard in on that. It's not like it's uh, on a screed or anything like There's no soapbox. But there are moments when she has to, like, literally, you know, tell, like, Scott Glenn's character, like, it's important about, like, how you talk to me in front of the other guys, because when he says things to her about, like, oh, well, it was just easier to go have that conversation with the guy um, than to bring you with, because, you know, he just doesn't... It's, it's him who's being disrespectful, not me. And then she has to point out, yeah, but by allowing him to take the lead, you're sending a message to all the other men in the room. And um, and even that shot in the funeral parlor after they leave and she's left there with all the local cops and they're all swarming her basically like vultures. And once again, she, the angle is that she at least appears to be about two to three feet above them, not in literal you know real life but just in the perspective of the camera and uh that's just kind of current throughout and you know the whole brooke adams storyline uh as the victim of buffalo bills uh you know uh stalking and serial killing whatever um routine um it all kind of swirls together to be this very gross meditation I think on male entitlement and the way it seeps into the culture both uh on on both sides of the law and I I absolutely eat it up I think the fact that you know Roger uh Corman and George Romero actually have cameos in this movie Roger Corman plays the head of the FBI he like answers the phone in one scene I think he even has a line and George Romero I don't think he has a line, but he's helping Dr. Chilton pull Clarice away uh, when she's in front of the cell and, you know, she's trying to talk to Hannibal one last time. Um, but I think the fact that they're present speaks to the fact that, like, Demi truly smuggled in something super horrific, but due to his very almost blue-collar approach and workmanlike ethic to just filmmaking in general, he was able to present it to an audience that normally would kind of look down on this entire subject matter and whatnot. So I have a lot of thoughts. I think it's pretty brilliant, and I think pretty much every aspect of it is fantastic. But I will pass it off to whoever wants to go next. Okay. Hi. I would like to go next, if that's okay, Alex. <laughs> it is. Okay, thank you. Um, well, Nick, I think you started off on a great foot because I do agree with um, pretty much everything that you said. Um, so as I mentioned before, this is my first time uh, watching the film. Um, I only knew like the basic uh, cultural references of this, which was Good Evening Clarice, which often gets misquoted as Hello Clarice, and then I ate his liver with... Um, fava beans and a nice Chianti, which I think was one of, when I heard that the first time as a, as a much younger person, I was like, what's that? And then whoever, whatever adult around me was like, that's wine. And I was like, Ooh, that's crazy. Um, and 
uh, that was pretty much it. And the the stills that I've seen previously um, are specifically with um, Clarice and Hannibal interacting with each other while he's still in his cell, um, which is not um, which isn't a whole lot of the film, but it is the uh, chunks that are in the beginning. Most of the film doesn't actually take place um, with uh, them interacting with each other while he's still in the cell. Most of the film takes place actually elsewhere. And Hannibal isn't even technically the focus because he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. Um, so that being said, um, just that's my, that was, those were my absorptions of the film prior to watching. Um, the beginning sequence, I loved so much um, when she was going through the obstacle course, my immediately thought was my immediate thought was, dang, that's like an easy Halloween costume, like Clarice Starling in her FBI sweats, um, and then all you do is just put your hair up. The, like that would be a very good, very niche Halloween costume. Um, and I do love uh, the visual um, juxtaposition, as Nick mentioned before, where um, she goes through uh, the lot and she is the only one who is dressed in her colors, um, along with like the height difference with her and the other um, trainees in the elevator too. Um, I think she passes like a group of men and women at one point and she's still the only one wearing a contrasting uniform. Um, I thought that was so cool and it started the film off on a really, really, really good note. Um, also, I really loved seeing Scott Glenn in here because um, I most recently saw him in uh, the Marvel television sh series where he's the mentor to uh, Daredevil. Um, so that was so cool to see him younger in here um, in Silence of the Lambs. And I thought he was so good in this. Um, he's definitely like he brings like that caliber. Um, and I... <laughs> There was so much I liked about this film, and the entire time I was thinking that this film makes a lot of choices that I very easily could not like, um, but I ended up liking them because they ended up working so good. Um, specifically, the one-on-one -on -one conversations that Clarice has with um, other characters. So, for example, when she is speaking with Scott Glenn, the camera is specifically aimed directly at them. So we have the point of view of Clarice. And then when the other person is talking to Clarice, we are also looking at her. Um, so those could have very easily been jarring and not translated well, but I really like them because it helps establishes, it helps establish um, the point of view we get um, from both characters, but specifically Clarice, because um, while she's doing um, her best to focus on people who are mentoring her and she's trying to do her job and get information from them. What we're also seeing is her learning and growing and um, going through this very high stakes, uh, stressful task and environment um, where we see her kind of like break eye contact and like focus a little bit more. Um, so that was actually really cool to see. Um, <clears throat> So before I, I end up talking way too much, I do want to say <laughs> um, my most favorite part of the film, and it was very easy for me to pick, um, but it was when, um, it's when Buffalo Bill uh, is getting dressed and we hear uh, the woman, um, I forget her name, I think it's, 
think it's Stacy, the one who's in the hole. Yeah. I'm so sorry. The actress was uh, Brooke Adams, but I forget what her name is in the movie. Her character's name? Okay, let me look it up. I'm so sorry. Catherine Martin. Okay, Catherine. Catherine's in the hole, and she is, and she's screaming. And Buffalo Bill is getting ready and putting on his makeup, and that song "Goodbye Horses" is playing in the background. And he goes, "Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me." And then he does that weird, <laughs> weird dance, that iconic dance that um, people know. So yeah, um, even uh, Jay of Jay and Silent Bob fame uh, <laughs> homage to it in Corks Two, where he basically oh, does that outside of the Scoobies. Oh, that's so funny. Um, but yeah, so um, upon first viewing, I mean, I, I like, I'm not quite sure what my expectations even were, but I am just so pleased with what I saw. So I am going to pass it off to Alex now. Why, thank you. I, as I mentioned, had never seen The Silence of the Lambs before, and I thought this was very good. And I thought it was, you know, bordering on great. However, I will say uh, that I put this in the same category personally as something like The Godfather Part Two, where I feel like I understand why people see this as a great film. But personally, for me, it just didn't land in that way. And I think that at least on my first viewing, an important part of that is the fact that this film has influenced clearly a lot of other filmmakers and a lot of other films that have been made uh, in the last 30 years. And really in this genre, comparing this to other films in the last decade or so, um, this film is super tame, and I will say, uh, just from that first past experience, I guess I, I was just a little surprised by the history that this film has, and also, too, um, the resume that this has in terms of people's unanimous love for it. And that being said, uh, I'm making it sound like I didn't like this, and that is definitely not the case. I thought this was a fantastic movie. Um, I just wouldn't put it into the one of the greatest of all time categories, uh, at least at this point. Uh, that being said, again, I did quite enjoy this. And I think one of the reasons why I enjoyed this so much is because I found myself actually kind of surprised by Anthony Hopkins' performance as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Obviously, I've heard the classic lines and I've seen some of the classic scenes from this, but actually watching Anthony Hopkins act, specifically in the early parts of the film, where he is definitely uh, the most prominent in the first, I would say, probably 45 minutes. Um, he, Anthony Hopkins, comparatively to any role he's done in the last 20 years is so different in this movie, whether it be his mannerisms or um, his tone of voice or his accent, um, or even the way that he, his mannerisms even like he is just a, I feel like almost completely different person from the Anthony Hopkins that I have been watching for my adult and 
you know, younger life. Uh, and I thought that was actually awesome and, and quite wonderful to see uh, somebody who, I, even though I, I like a lot, has really been playing the same guy for the last 20 years. Uh, he, he puts on a really, really stellar performance here. And so does Jodie Foster. And I think something that makes me a little bit sad about this film is that Jodie Foster seems to be on a path to being uh, an all-time actress at one point. And she obviously uh, ended up going, I don't want to say a different way, but her, her career um, really flatlined at a certain point. I mean, maybe it was in the late 90s when she was doing slews of films that were just kind of cash grabs. But she's been, for the most part, out of Hollywood um, in a way for the last 15 years other than random time she's shown up like she was in that random movie a couple of years ago where she's the doctor in this hitman hospital uh she directed that really random george clooney movie money monster that that's... i think me and nick actually saw in the theater yeah i was gonna say that's kind of why her career is somewhat took a turn is because she got more interested in directing which she'd actually been doing since the 90s like she, she's yeah. made quite a few movies actually and some of them are actually good um but i think that's superseded her interest and then because she gave so much energy to that she was never quite able to recover uh, acting wise but Anna what were you going to say? I was just going to say I know on top of her directing a film like Money Monster she did direct a handful of episodes of Orange is the New Black mm -hmm. and then um, I would say her other popular film aside from this one of course is a 10 plus years later when she was in Panic Room but even yeah. so Panic room was almost 20 years ago at this yeah. point and you have um, to remember too that she had been acting since she was like 14 when she was in taxi driver and she exactly. was the, yeah the little yeah. girl with travis pickle so i mean the other thing too is she could have just been burnt out which is completely understandable so mm -hmm. yeah and then yeah. a few years ago uh just one more thing really quickly she did get that um cecil b demille award at the golden globes quite a handful of years ago um because of her lifetime achievements which is you know pretty great so was that the award ceremony where she talked about how much she loved mel gibson oh. uh... i remember watching it and like the focus of it was fyi i'm single and people took that as like a coming out thing and then a few years okay. later married her wife but okay, because there, there, there was at one point this really bizarre speech she gave regarding Mel Gibson, and I don't remember everything about it, but it was very odd. I, um, anyway, I don't remember that, but I will say that I've seen her movie that she directed called The Beaver, where Mel Gibson plays a dad who's going through a psychotic breakdown. To oh, where, that should have been an easy one for him. Yeah, to where he can only communicate to his entire family through a hand puppet that's uh, a beaver. This is a real movie. Uh, I think it starred. I think it starred him. I think Jodie Foster may have been the wife, actually, besides directing. Um, I don't remember who did that, but it was also, I believe, Anton Yelchin and uh, Jennifer Lawrence, Aww, I think, for the sad. kids or something like that. Anyway, I remember when that movie came out, I really wanted to see it because I thought that was such a weird concept, and it was, and it wasn't very good. 
the only thing I'll say, and now this is going back, you know, 12 years from now at this point, but she does give a really solid performance in Spike Lee's Inside Man. So yeah, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Oh, super underrated. Great film. I remember really liking it when I saw it, but that was, you know, when it first came out, which was ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a, a true Spike Lee film. I mean, he's just doing a job pretty much in that, I would think. Right, Nick? Or you, is that it? You think I, that I mean, he, he, I, he didn't that? write the script or anything, but I definitely okay. think he thought of that as another, uh, you know, us versus them take down the rich. You know, I mean, I, I think they're, I think he smuggled in his normal uh, fixation into Oh, yeah. It. But I mean, for certainly, not... certainly it's definitely one of his more uh, accessible and uh, mainstream works. It's no old boy. Mm, no. <laughs> so, no. Uh, other than um, the actors, uh, and all, as I mentioned, Scott Glenn is in this, and he's actually quite good in this. Another person that probably hasn't gotten enough credit throughout his career. But the storyline here is um, it's it's interesting, but I feel like the plot line is is at some point. Very, very just weird because, and again, this is so hard to say after a first time viewing 30 years after this film was released, especially in the insane landscape that we live in, in the obsession with not just serial killers, but any sort of criminal. Uh, there's television shows, movies, other forms of media that have ridden that all the way to the bank. And yet at the same time, as I was saying, this seems like a, a pretty boilerplate story of, of let's talk to this guy who's at the end of the hallway in this sort of jail cell and it's don't pass set. anything to him. It's a great What's set. That? I was going to say it's a oh, great it set. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. he's, he's got one of the most beautiful jail cells ever. So that's interesting to give that to... <laughs> You know, <laughs> this guy eats people. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, we, we we see the way the story progresses. And as you get farther away from the plot of the story and into a lot of the themes of the film, that's where this really shines and becomes an actual well-done and fantastic movie. Because like Nick is saying a lot of the storyline involving these shots and also the blocking and story storyboarding storyboarding and then also script writing regarding Clarice's character um, is, is, is really fantastic outside of the plot line of the film and also to um, that scene in the uh, courthouse or wherever they are mm-hmm. in uh, Tennessee uh, is fabulous. Everything that is set up about that is really good. And Moan, let me tell you, you can do anything, anytime. Any film that puts someone's body in trying to make it seem like it is someone else and then we find out that that person is actually somewhere else is and it doesn't matter the context. I am all for it anytime. And it was done so well here. And I will say, even though I said this is not an all, this film has an all time shot for me, which is uh, 
Hannibal Lecter rising up in the ambulance and removing his false face that he's put on to then take out everyone else in the ambulance. It makes Saul look like shit because <laughs> it's like, oh, they just totally stole that. Holy fuck. Oh, yeah. And, that's I was going to uh, say, that's uh, one of the biggest, I would say, descendants of this franchise or movie, I should say. Yeah. But yeah. And just the way that that was shot, the way that he slowly moves up and then turns around and takes it off is just, damn, that's such good filmmaking. And it looks so good and obviously hangs up. And it was just, I was just watching that. Me and Emily were watching the film and just seeing that take place. I was like, it, it was like the first time I think since last year when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the theater for the first time, like when Leonardo DiCaprio goes to the shed and gets the blowtorch to burn that woman alive, I I remember in the theater like sitting up and like slowly clapping to myself like, yay, this is exciting. (laughs) And that's exactly how I felt in the ambulance scene. Hannibal's gonna Hannibal. (laughs) Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's what he does. And a baller. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, oh, I also really quick, and we'll talk more about this probably later. But I, I will say I did really appreciate uh, the moment uh, when he does go after the first police officer, and when he's in the cell, when he gets them into there and gets his handcuffs off way too easily. Uh, I do really like that there is a weird, almost almost shot-for-shot shot mirroring of that and the scene uh, in Batman Returns where Danny DeVito bites the guy's nose off <laughs> because it's just just the way he just, just swoops in almost like a almost like a vulture and just like, ah! <laughs> birds of a feather, you know? Like, he, he, he's not going in to eat that person. He's going in to take take a piece off their face. Um, and, um, I, I don't know. Um, 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 um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, other than some of the uh, aspects of the film that we've already hit on uh, in our opening thoughts, what, what are some other things that you guys really love about this film that you think make it the classic that it is known as today? Um... I do want to say um, I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, the scene where we get our twist of how Hannibal escapes that courthouse because this film gave me two like visceral out of my seat moments. One of which was when we find out uh, what Hannibal actually did, and he rises up in the. Um, in the stretcher inside the ambulance and then, you know, takes off. And I was like, wait, is Hannibal just really going to do that? And then I was like, oh yeah, he's going to be in Red Dragon with Ed Norton in a few years. So, I mean, that's where he's going. Um, And then the other moment that- That's what he said too, as he drove away. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to go see Ed. (laughs) The other moment for me that definitely, uh, it was like a, it was a shock and disgust was earlier on in the film when Clarice is exiting um, her first encounter um, with Hannibal and she gets Muggsy's cum thrown at her. God, that was gross. I remember the first time I watched this, which was only a couple, maybe three or four or five years ago, but 
that thing is what surprised me the most about the entire movie as far as like, oh, wow, they did this back then in 1991, you know, like not the gore yeah. or whatever. But I was like, oh, wow, they had fake semen like thrown at Jodie Foster. Exactly. Um, You'd be hard pressed to find fake semen in an HBO show. Right. Like, well, they started doing that about five years ago. I think the first time I really remember it was in the very famous episode of Girls <laughs> where that oh, was yeah. like the climax <laughs> of that uh, episode. Uh, yeah, I remember the internet for the following week was uh, ablaze. But no, like that's a recent phenomenon. So like the fact that this movie did that um, uh, yeah, well actually this movie has a lot I think to offer as far as for being a movie in which male, you know, psychopaths are obviously enacting violence against women, we see a lot more male scatological, you know, viewpoints, whether it's, you know, the semen from that criminal or whatever, dude, or it's, you know, Buffalo Bills, uh, dams and whatnot. Like, it, this movie doesn't go out of its way to exploit, like, women's bodies, which is actually refreshing for 1991 because they're still doing that today of, like, well, if we're doing a serial killer rapist movie, then we gotta get our ob obligatory breasts in, you know, and whatever. And I think that's kind of what solidifies this movie's, uh, uh, credentials when it comes to having a pretty refreshing, you know, feminist agenda. And I, I, I some people are probably going to roll their eyes at that, but whatever. Um, and the, the other thing too, is I guess going off of that is that what's funny about <laughs> Clarice's involvement in this entire case is that she is deliberately targeted by uh, Jack Crawford for being a woman, right? Because he brings her in to bring to Hannibal, and of course, uh, Hannibal points out, oh, he, he brought a woman, so that, or, wait, was it even Hannibal, or was it somebody else that points it out to her, but, you know, points, maybe it was Dr. Chilton, yeah, because he was all pissed off, um, mm -hmm. you know, points out that, like, oh, of course, he sent in a woman to get, you know, the, the male to react or whatever, so it's funny, because at, at every turn, she's, like, this valuable tool to these men who are who can't even do their own jobs you know correctly and that they need her but then when she has uh you know actual insight and opinions on the case and whatnot uh it they're almost always unanimously dismissed and not even because they don't really believe her but it's like it's just been this unspoken thing that well you're a woman you haven't been doing this as long as we have and so, therefore, you know, like, we're going to do it our way first. And that directly leads to, of course, the finale, which is kind of what I was ramping up to. But that is one of my favorite uh, use of editing ever in any movie, uh, which, you know, I feel like maybe by today's standards, you know, like, not that it's like an overused thing, but it's certainly something that a lot of people have taken from. But the cross-cutting between the two houses where we believe we're following one story and we don't realize that it's Clarice who's going to actually step into Buffalo Bill's homestead uh, and not the other way around uh, is both just a gut punch on a thematic level. I mean, you know, that <laughs> quite literally screams believe women, <laughs> uh, you know, but also is a genuinely thrilling set piece when she's alone and has to uh, go throughout that entire hellscape that is buffalo bill's house from the just from the awkward pleasantries in the living room to the 
uh, in my opinion at least, terrifying uh, night vision scene, which I think it's still genuinely uh, Ooh, yeah. like terrifying to watch. Um, just because it's so well shot and so well acted, like that the really is just like one person. Right next to her face. Yeah. Oh, man. And that's the thing, it never actually touches her. And, like, that's what... I think this movie is very similar to something like Seven, where Seven is, like, a gory movie, and yet you never actually see the gore happen. And I think that's kind of what this movie started, which is the idea, the uh, implic... uh, The inf... uh, What do I want to say? The inference of violence and not the actual depiction of it, you know? Where it's, like, we see aftermath or we see uh, the intention of, but that's all psychological, uh, not, you know, shown on screen. And and that's way more scarier, I think, in the long run. Which which is very interesting because if you look at the history of film, specifically in America... um, The only country as far as I'm concerned... (laughs) (laughs) um you wonder which that part i also loved and i i i do always appreciate the idea of seeing like letting your mind's eye see the violence while it's not actually being on screen obviously there's plenty of examples of violence actually being on screen um but but i wonder how how much that has to do with people still going off of how films were, you know, 80 years ago, 60 years ago, whatever, when there were censors and there were rules against what you could and couldn't show. Uh, And it honestly led to some wonderful creativity, specifically with people like Alfred Hitchcock, uh, but other others as well that had to be very creative with the way that they showed violence and other things like sex on screen um and it led to some really wonderful filmmaking that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been there well what i think is interesting about that is that i actually think it's almost a certainty that for me at least jonathan demi in this movie was making conscious choices not to show it and not because of uh you know, censorship or anything like that, simply because of the fact that he, like I mentioned earlier, he got to start doing uh, movies for New World Pictures where, you know, he was in the realm of B-movies. So if you start at one extreme where you are allowed to show, uh, you know, whatever you can get away with with whatever low budget you have, like fake blood squibs and whatnot, but then, you know, about 15 or so years later, you're now making this movie, um, and yet you have Roger Corman and George Romero, uh, the guy, you know, directed Dawn of the uh, Dead and the other zombie movies. Like, those are two gore meisters, so... I feel like it's almost kind of showing them in a way and getting them to co-sign on a, a new wave of terror, which is uh, less visceral and more psychologically stunting. I mean, the scene in which Buffalo Bill abducts uh, Caitlin is pretty horrifying because when she backs up into the van, we never she's completely absent then in the shot. We cannot mm. see her at all. But yet when he, you know, punches her out, that's like one of the more gruesome scenes I can think of in the entire movie. And yet we don't even see anything make contact. That's just sound editing and, uh, and you know, his hulking figure uh, uh, in silhouette. What do you guys think about... Um where this film ends with Buffalo Bill's character, because I was, I I will say I was pretty interested in where this film ended up. 
um, both in how he chose his victims, why he chose his victims, and the idea of um, psychological profiling and the simplicity of what, at least in terms of the modern landscape for viewers at home, of what predators and serial killers are, um, this idea of there's three things they could be, and it, they have to be one of them. Um, and even though Buffalo Bill is obviously a serial killer, it's for at least the way it was presented on screen, um, you know, different reasons that are normally seen in films or in television regarding serial killers. Uh, and, and obviously, I didn't necessarily find it refreshing or anything like that. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I feel like that story was was very unique, and I was very surprised where it ended up. And uh, I'm interested to hear your guys' takes on it. Um, I thought specifically when it comes to Buffalo Bill, and I will say um, how this film concluded, uh, mostly because truthfully, I it was so cool because I didn't see it coming. So I actually love how this film ended. Um. I think that this film benefits from having um, support and consult from the FBI and they are like extremely hesitant to help with projects like this. But in this case, they were willing to um, lend a helping hand. So I think that helped with the authenticity of it. Um, Alex, I think you're alluding to how Buffalo Bill gets profiled as uh, I mean, not necessarily profiled, but we end up learning from him, learning about him from Hannibal, that he is um, seeking gender reassignment surgery and uh, at one point got rejected. I, It, it might have been mentioned that he got rejected more than once, but he for sure got rejected at least once. And as soon as they... Um, it was mentioned in the film that he's supposedly desiring to be a transsexual. I was like, how is this film going to present um, this topic? And truly, um, I think that the type of um, predator he is and the type of serial killer that he is, um, it is like, it's alluding to, how should I say this? Um, it's truly taking the most violent desire of um, how you wish you were. And I think the conclusion that they, how somebody wishes that they were, and I think the conclusion that they come to is that the reason he became rejected for a surgery like that is because he doesn't show enough of, I don't know, the requirements to, to truly get it. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want it for the right reasons, so to speak. Um, it's just more so him like violently fetishizing something and thus uses a skill, i.e. dressmaking to be violent toward women um, and then ends up, uh, you know, seeing what we like displaying the type of behavior that we see in the film. Um, as far as um, anything else about that, I mean, it could have been presented in a much more insensitive or inaccurate way but i thought it was it was like it was terrifying enough and it was believable enough um 
and I I guess I really like how they uh, discovered um, more and more about Buffalo Bill, um, including discovery of the victims and the types of um, findings that were in and on the women's bodies. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought it was uh, cool and scary. Is my is my conclusion. <laughs> also, too, is the uh, the term you use that is used throughout this film uh, it makes this movie for sure dated. As uh, this this film has no problem referring to transgendered people as transsexual. Yes, so. that's a very dated term. So yeah, that yeah. definitely is this film for sure. Yeah, I so you know rewatching it uh, this past week, I was definitely slightly apprehensive because I obviously remember that that's, you know, uh, a component of this movie, but I, once again, after re-watching it, I was kind of reaffirmed as to why I think this movie is so good, and that is it draws on a pretty long lineage of a lot of bad use of uh, that particular trope of that kind of started back with, you know, Psycho of uh, this kind of male dresses up in female uh whether it's just dressing up in clothes or you know whatever uh and it goes all the way through to the 80s with brian de palma and then you know even to this with 1991 but it almost rebukes that instead of like and i love brian de palma but <laughs> he in something like dressed to kill which i think is a great movie but is super problematic he's aping alfred hitchcock but he also hasn't updated anything in like the 20 years that pass <laughs> so it's kind of you know it's just kind of it's it's sleazy in the wrong way because it's just like you can't fall back on and say well i'm making a sleazy movie so it doesn't have to be politically correct with like well it doesn't have to be but also you're showing your ass um if you're just you know doing it without your due diligence but whatever but a movie like this what i like is that um you know, besides, you know, obviously the outdated terms and whatnot, but although that's probably historically accurate as to how these people uh, in particular would have talked about them, unfortunately, um, that it's a direct rebuke of that. And it's basically, it goes all in on saying that um, a character like Buffalo Bill, or in this case, James Gum, is not that trope and not only is he not that trope but he in particular is just a person who is so uncomfortable in his own skin he will essentially create this fantasy of what he thinks would either solve his problem uh which is funny because it's actually rooted in what's really the problem which is a deep misogyny and uh you know this predilection to enact violence on people who he sees as oppressors which to him is probably the entire you know female race so i like the fact that the movie kind of dresses down that trope and says like well yeah you know we thought this was this because you know let's just because you know like movies of the past and whatnot and i kind of like that that's almost like a meta aspect of it but in reality you know some people are just shitheads and we don't have to portray uh you know this in in a negative light and 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 get away with it so i, I kind of like that that how that wraps up and how um, even the characters in the movie kind of go, like, kind of go with it, too. It's not like they find that incredulous and they're like, what? No, they're like, okay, yeah, Occam's Razor, the simplest solution is always the right one, which is just that, you know, this is just a sick thing he likes to do, and so let's not even give him the benefit of, you know, misrepresenting uh, an entire uh, population of people who are not this. So, yeah, I... 
Obviously, I have no authority to speak on the subject whatsoever, but um, right. it doesn't feel gross to me in the way that like a Brian De Palma film does. Uh, unfortunately, I still like Brian De Palma's films. Um, so, can, no, no, please go ahead, Anna. I was just going to say very quickly, uh, Nick, you really couldn't have said that any better. Um, and like as was mentioned, uh, truly the conclusion is he finds these women to skin them and um that's that's like the that's the light bulb that's the linchpin that's the straw that broke the camel's back and that's truly just the the core of it and it's also alluded to that he sexually assaults these women and um yeah he just is (laughs) he's just the the root the root of his misogyny is just really using women for all parts that they're worth it's a dissociative thing in the sense that he has these problems in this camp and yet in his mind he's trying to argue to the world that whatever problems he has is actually this camp and it's like the world is like nope fuck that you're just fucked up and so exactly yeah. yeah So, uh, I have two more things that I definitely want us to talk about before um, moving on to final ratings. I am so yes. sorry. I thought they were going to be quiet this episode. Uh, since you brought it up, uh, <laughs> let's talk about uh, the lamb story from Clarice and how it ties into the title of this film. Um, and, and I'm interested to hear your guys' takes on, on that and that aspect of the film, which... I thought was I, I I'll say this I wasn't sure how to feel about it. Well, uh I'm obviously a big fan. I love when titles have this kind of oblique reference that you can only understand when you watch the movie. Uh in which case then you get the reference point but then you still have to kind of dig your own, you know, grave and lie there yourself. And so I um I I'm a big fan. I like that story because I definitely kind of uh, at least for me, at least understand what he's going for, and that like you know, you if you if you deal with trauma in in her case, you know the early death of her father, by seeking out related trauma and trying to solve it, then you know your entire life will be based on trauma, you know, and so I kind of equate that with you know like literal noise, like so, like if you're truly trying to seek peace, then obviously noise would be the opposite. It's you know not very peaceful, or whatever. So, I like the fact that you know first he says it up front, like you know he tells that story because he's already honed in on why you know Clarice is who she is and why she's going for what she's going for. And I feel like he only tells that story because he knows how good she is. And this is basically the only thing he can kind of get, you know, under her skin (laughs) um, with. And so by the end of the movie, you know, it's almost like I feel like he helps her along to get Buffalo Bill, not to get to the prison or to get away, which obviously that was like an added benefit, but to essentially kind of have that last laugh of like, yeah, so you caught him, but, um, you know, had the lamb stopped screaming, like, like, did anything actually change? Do you feel better as a person? Are you ever going to actually find an inner peace within? And it's like almost like another step in, I think, a very Machiavellian plan that he has where he doesn't, like, she doesn't even realize that in him enabling her and helping her, uh, he's able to throw that back in her face at the very end as he walks away and say, yeah, you know, it's never going to get any better, is it? And, And then, you know, 
drop the mic, or in this case, the uh, <laughs> the payphone. So I, I'm a big fan of it. I, I like the implications there. What about you guys? Alex, do yeah. you want to go ahead? You sure? Yeah. I, I, again, this is since this is the first time uh, viewing for me. Uh, I I will say I was surprisingly caught off guard by that story because as soon as we got to the meat of the story, <laughs> that there were the screaming lambs and she attempted to save the one and it went south. Um, I I was really appreciative of that because I feel like it actually had a place in the film where I've always kind of just thought the silence of the lambs just sounded cool. So that was the title. Uh, um, so uh, I, I appreciated it. And man, let me tell you, I really appreciated the drawing of the lamb um, in uh, <laughs> Hannibal Lecter's makeshift cell. That was. He's such a good um, artist. So talented. Even Clarice holding the lamb. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, one more I didn't know too. I had that kink, but I now I know. <laughs> uh, also, too, man, in that they really put together that makeshift prison in uh, a real hurry, and it showed because, <laughs> man, there were a lot of issues happening there. Like, I, I don't know, just the way that the cell is set up and it's in the middle of like a gymnasium or something like i don't know very weird very bizarre also too was bizarre was the uh uh interaction that hannibal has with uh the mother uh before that where he's asking her extremely personal questions um and she almost feels uh, i don't know what the best word to say is but she she almost feels like she has to answer his questions to get him to yeah and and it's really gross and honestly it's 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 uglier than some of the scenes where he eats people in this movie in my opinion because he's just going for this person just for fun and it is just um but seriously raise your hand if you were breastfed (laughs) um Alex, I think that's a very good question to pose because like you, I also did think that, oh, Silence of the Lambs is obviously just a very cool title. Um, and I also do like it when films are are named, you know, something odd. And then uh, for whatever reason, we the audience does or doesn't end up finding uh, the meaning one way or another. Um, and then also, of course, we know the, the famous the famous quote from this film, quid, quid, quid pro quo Clarice, which... Um, Unfortunately, now we all know that term even more than we should. Exactly. And we know that term because that is a type of harassment in the workplace. Um, so, I which, mean... You know, to be fair, Hannibal was doing. He yes, was he harassing was. her at her job. He was harassing Although her at Although Muggsy her job. was probably a bit more <laughs> of a... Yeah, the, the, Muggsy the, was a hostile work environment. He was the true. other type of harassment. That's true. Cannibal <laughs> yeah. technically apologized on his behalf. Yeah. Which I actually <laughs> love that scene because it's both <laughs> endearing for like a split second. I don't mean like it like I have enough time to actually like sympathize with whatever, but it catches you off guard to the point where then it becomes creepier that he's like, I I would never, you know, permit such a thing. That is disgusting. So here I'll help you out, you know, like that's so Yeah, I will say 
now that you are mentioning it, I think they really missed an opportunity in this film because it would have been fabulous to see Clarice go into HR and complain that she got semen thrown in her face. So, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that scene would be like, uh (laughs) uh-huh. Knowing what we know about the epidemic that is HR and uh, mishandling of... I'm, I'm being half serious. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're right on the money. It's They'd be okay. like, okay, did it get in your eye? Like, they wouldn't really... Did it kill you? Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. Or, like, the, the best, they'd be like, well, you can't get pregnant that way, so why are you complaining? <laughs> like... But oh my god! You don't know it. Yeah, no, it's yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So yep. anyway, um, I um, I actually that reminds me of other parts of <laughs> other shot other shots of, a of the story that I really that like. reminds me of other semen in the eye moments in film. <laughs> Top six semen eye moments. No. <laughs> I actually, unfortunately, Nick probably has them. So yeah, I'm sure Nick know. does. Unfortunately, I don't. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I can't think of any in the eye. <laughs> All right, man. Well, work uh, on your list. Okay. Anyway, so um, other shots of the film that I really liked. Um, I think this is a little bit before or a little bit after. Um, Hannibal Lecter tries to get uh, information out of Clarice as a way to get to know her. We start to see um, flashbacks of what Clarice's childhood is like. And I think it is so cool how those flashbacks are set up. Uh, One of the shots that stands out to me the most is when we're in the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And it transitions into the funeral for Clarice's dad when she was really small. Um, and I think it takes the viewer just a few moments to realize what's actually happening. Cause I think that's one of the first shots that we see of like tiny Clarice. Um, so I thought that was done so well. Um, and I was wondering like after Clarice tells the story of, um, you know, her being on the farm in Montana and then her eventually running away with a lamb and unfortunately not being able to save it. I was wondering if we would get a shot like that too but it was so much more effective her just sharing the story so i thought that was just very good um like literal storytelling on the um, director's part and i really really like the way um that was delivered by jodie foster i thought that was one of the better scenes um in the whole film um but yeah uh i like how we learned that is the the basically the origin of the phrase the silence of the lambs and that is the title of the book too so like the book does explain it um of course to us and then also i didn't know that lambs scream like children uh, clearly i haven't been on a farm too often so yeah i don't i don't i, I gotta tell you i'm not a big hurry to find out oh me neither yeah my it just... uh my younger dog i have two uh because he's so tiny when he cries it sounds like a lamb it's just like, ah, like it. It is one of the most horrifying things ever, uh, and and I'm not saying he cries a lot. Like I don't abuse him or anything. He's just neurotic, and he hates when people like leaves the house without his permission. 
Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very tiny dog behavior. I can totally relate. But he's so tiny that his voice box doesn't work properly when he, when he <laughs> cries. So he's just like, ah! Anyway. He's definitely like, he's definitely wishes his voice box was bigger. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, but before I get to my last uh, um, discussion point that I was going to bring up for everybody, which I think is a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if you guys agree. Okay. Uh, I did want to mention, uh, as you both have uh, brought up moments in this film with cross-cut editing and i just wanted to mention that i watched a movie in the last few days uh that's a very good film that doesn't get talked about enough i don't think that has one of the better cross-cuts uh in at least in terms of editing that i remember from the last you know 10 years or so uh and that is the scene in the film wind river when um, the mm. group is outside of the trailers going to look in and see what is happening and find the person who's inside. And when the door opens, we then go back and see the actual murder that took Flashback, place in that yeah. film. Yeah. It, and that's that, that I don't know if you've ever heard of or seen that movie, Anna, but it is fabulous. So I will be honest. I think I saw it on your log on uh, Letterboxd. Um, mm-hmm. I only truly did see like the last few moments of that film. Um, mm-hmm. And it does include the scene that you're mentioning because it's the scene where they go in and then it turns into Jonathan Bernthal and then the woman. Yeah. And then it ends up becoming that murder scene. And I just like, first of all, I was intrigued, but at the same time, I was like, oh, I know this film is going to break my heart if I watch it from beginning to it end. Is, it um, is, in, in, all, in my opinion, and it's not perfection or anything like that, but in every, in almost every sense, it's a great movie because it checks a lot of boxes. Specifically, it is entertaining. It is a well-wrote script, and it also... Um, a well-written script, pardon me. And it also at the same time brings awareness to something that honestly people don't give a shit about. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great movie by a, a young filmmaker and more writer, Taylor Sheridan, who's, who's done a lot of good work already in his younger career. So yeah, I, I should start that from beginning to end. So I'm glad that you think the world of it. That's a good film. Hell or high water is also a good film. So just, just, you know, just, Wasn't- it, 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 if you're, if you're looking for anything else to watch while we're all stuck at home for the next three years, um, you know, those, those are good ones. Anyway, okay. So the last film, or last film, the last part of this that I, I definitely think we should discuss before moving on to our final thoughts is this idea of Hannibal Lecter and that character specifically in this film. Because I find this movie very interesting in its portrayal of them. Because I feel like that this movie is so conflicted over whether Hannibal Lecter is a villain or a protagonist. And I say that only because his character has multiple moments in this that is played up for humor and also that is played up for the audience, I feel like, to not sympathize with him, but to really... Um, just get on board with that character. And you and should I probably watch it, the MBC series, Hannibal. Yeah. 
that has such positive reviews that I really need uh, to respond to what Nick is saying. I've heard it's great. (laughs) It's fantastic, and it basically takes that idea to the literal edge. (laughs) And not in a way where it makes him to be a good person or anything like that, but... I think the poster for the NBC show Hannibal is one of the best posters I've ever seen. Yeah. Because I love just, you see the bottom of his chin and then he's just slowly, or he, he just has a uh, handkerchief uh, after eating. And I just think that is fantastic. So, yeah. I mean, I will uh, say that the weird thing about watching the silence of the lambs in today's world is that we do have Hannibal, which is probably, I think now the definitive take, I don't think anybody who watches that show doesn't think of Mads Mikkelsen as the Hannibal from now on and forever because mm. he's that good. I'm not even saying the show isn't necessarily as good as this movie um, in general. Like, I think that's debatable. But talk about, like... And obviously it's not very fair. I mean, Anthony Hopkins had 16 minutes of screen time in this. And, um, you know... Yet somehow one vacillating actor, what? Like, I, I don't know, sorry. The Academy's a full of shit. Yeah. Yeah, um, but no, it's it's one of those things where it's like you know, we now have a whole other where where this franchise used to be known for the fact that there were many properties and Silence of a Land was like the only good one, which is bullshit because Manhunter is also very good. Uh, we now have an actual contender like twenty years later of an actual you know addition to the canon. So now things are a lot dicier. But I agree with you that. Um, you know, the way this plays is that it, it plays against type. You would think that a character like Hannibal would be the main character and would be the main villain that, you know, you would love to hate. But in reality, he's honestly, it's like he sees the movie happening and then he uses the movie for his own benefit. And like that's what makes him all the more like clever and creative and, and downright scary. I don't know, weirdly enough, I feel like this film portrays him in this weird, like, Al Capone way, where people almost see him in this, like, oh, man, he's a terrible person, but he's so smart, he's so savvy. It's like, what? This guy eats people. Come on, man. So, um, I think that you posed a very good question, Alex, as is this film trying to identify him as a good guy or a bad guy? Because that immediately uh, lends me to the phrase anti-hero, which is we get a character who is um, framed as being uh, a central part of the story. The focus is pretty much on them. And we're led to believe to some degree that they are the protagonist, but at the same time, are they really... Um, so, I mean, to a much different extent, like in a, a separate part of this Venn diagram of antiheroes we're talking about, um, we have a character like Walter White from Breaking Bad, who is a family man that gets diagnosed with cancer. And once he makes money from doing drugs, um, from doing drugs, from selling drugs, um, does he, does he continue, does he need to continue doing it? That is, um, that is the the conflict that he gets and the answer is no, but he does it anyway. In the case of um, Hannibal Lecter, we know that he is a very, very smart, 
um, psychologist who has this information that other characters in this film need to solve um, to solve the case of a serial killer, but he is also a criminal who eats people, and he's only willing to help um, if others follow his direction at every call. And um, it also reminds me what I wanted to mention earlier, and I forgot, is even through the end of the film, Clarice still addresses Hannibal as Dr. Lecter. Like she, whether or not she realizes it, she ended up building a rapport with him and that was foreshadowed by um, Jack Crawford saying, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. You don't. And he got in there a little bit. She didn't have a, um, a full mental breakdown, but she did end up being vulnerable to him in a way that I'm sure she never wanted to be vulnerable to him at all, even in the most um, verbal sense. Um, and that ended up translating to how they interact at the end of the film, where he still used what he had to his advantage, which which is when he ended up asking, have the lamb stop screaming? So I think that's the, I think personally Hannibal in this film falls under anti-hero. I'll say that I don't necessarily think that Hannibal, like I said earlier, because he's only in this for like 15 minutes or so, um, I don't think the movie tries to identify with him or even prop him up as being like beneficial to anybody's situation because I think ironically Clarice could have solved this without him but he was a faster way to get there but what I do think is interesting about Hannibal in general is that he is a on an almost metatextual level he is a precursor to I think society's fascination with serial killers run rampant where you know we all romanticize the life of the mind of these people and um you know like what makes them tick and whatnot so that of course positing one like him as an actual genius which i think is indisputable in you know these movies and whatnot uh only makes it that much more fascinating because then we start to think like well if he's smarter than us then does he know something we don't like does he see morality in a higher you know power way that us you know peons don't and it's like then we have to kind of shake those clouds away and realize no he's actually mentally ill and you know that can go hand in hand with, uh, you know, actual intelligence and IQ. Um, but I, I think it's, like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's a weird precursor to the way we get sucked into these stories. Like, we want to know more about the person and we don't care as much about the victim. So I think it's more of a mirror to society than, and to us than it is what the movie itself is trying to say. I think the, our reactions are on us. I can get on board with that. Good stuff. Choo -choo. So I think I'll go. <laughs> I think I'll go first for final ratings. If uh, everyone's cool with that, yeah. Yep. Unless anybody had something else they wanted to discuss. Sorry if I, I was, I no. was taking, taking over all the, all the questions. What did you guys think of Buffalo Bill dancing? Because truly, I did love that. <laughs> Um, I mean, um, I, I thought it was. I give it definitely... an eight. <laughs> like, I definitely think his footwork is there, but I do <laughs> think the costuming, while 
um, certainly thematically appropriate. I feel like it actually hindered him. I think if he would have did the entire thing naked, he would have lost his inhibition completely, and he would have been left alone with the only thing that maybe pushes him to dance, which is his own skin. Dancing the freestyle, Buffalo Bill with himself. Carrie Naba. Is there a film that has a, a dance Serial scene? killers on Dancing with the Stars? There will be. <laughs> God, I hope so. Someday. They have to get there. Oh, my. We're on our way, I think. Uh, <laughs> is, is there another part of film? I'm just thinking about this, so I haven't really put this thought together, so this might go badly. But is there is there another aspect of film that it, it is easier for people to get on board with just absolutely gobbing over than dance scenes in film? Because, like, like I remember when seen in a theater, but I feel like one of the only things I ever see anyone talk about about the great film Ex Machina is the really random dance scene in the middle of it. I feel like dance scenes are, are I'm, so bizarre. I'm and with they, you. They are in so many films and yet people really gravitate towards them and find them fascinating. I'm with you in the sense that dance scenes in movies that are non-musicals are literally cinema's greatest gift to us. And we should <laughs> cherish them. And I'm being completely serious. I mean, I think when we did our, I don't know, it was the best of a year or something where I flat out admitted that um, the Big Dick Richie's dance scene in the Quickie Mart was like my, that's his name. Okay, have, mm. some, have some respect. Uh, but his <laughs> dance in the, uh, in the shopping mart, whatever, uh, was like one of my all time favorite scenes in all of cinema. And, and I, so I'm like completely biased because I genuinely love when a movie stops what it's doing to literally put on a show. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I, th- I think most people are like, I think that's why scenes like that are the scenes that we see from films that are random and then you're like oh look a dance scene from that film and it's like oh i mean the breakfast club and yet if you tried to play some line of dialogue they'd be like ugh, i don't want to watch any more of the kevin bacon footloose movie get out of here um i think uh uh, first of all you are (laughs) you couldn't have asked this question to a better person because as a person who loves alex As a person who loves shows like Dancing with the Stars, um, and truly the only thing I tr- the my only knowledge of dance comes from that show. Um, uh, as someone who loves that, I do actually I agree with uh, Nick in the sense that um, films that aren't musicals or focused on dance that have a random scene, I think, are just um, they can be taken in two or you know one or both ways where it's just uh fun or it can add something to the story i know um ex machina which personally i have not seen but i do know that there is a i know there is i i've heard it's good and i also am aware of the dance scene that exists in that um 
I also think of the film End of Watch, where it's Jake Gyllenhaal's and Anna Kendrick's wedding day. And I think there's like a certain demo, which includes me, where you watch that and you're like, is Jake Gyllenhaal a good dancer? <laughs> like, it's it's just something like that where it kind of takes you out of it. But at the same time, like... He was a better dancer I- than he was a cop. <laughs> Oh boy! Um, it's just something so cool to see because I think for a moment, um, at least me personally, it it gives you like a split second of suspending your disbelief and being like, not only did this actor have to get into character for what they do for the majority of the film, but at the same time, they had to learn that they had to do what Dancing with the Stars does every single week in the fall and the spring and they had to learn that little routine that's like you know 30 to 90 seconds and they get as many tries as they want one scene right huh i said just for one scene right just for one scene they like they they rehearse it as they would technically anything else um but it is like so different um than what they do the majority of the film so i think it is super cool and fun um, but yeah, so I, I agree with, with Nick basically. Well, I love, I'll say one I love... other thing too, really quick, which is that like, I mean, the science behind it is pretty simple, which is that film is a visual medium. So when mm-hmm. you pair it with dance, it almost makes more sense on camera than people standing around. So I think that's where, I mean, it's true though. Like, you know, that's yeah. where the elevation comes from of people responding to those kind of moments in cinema where it's almost like, oh, this like, I I inherently understand what I am watching because this is made for what this medium and whatnot. Whereas everything else is the tough sell. Um, even to people who love movies, like you know, well, this is just two characters talking in a room. It's like, okay, well, what do they have to say? Whatever. It's like this is a character fucking dancing. Like that, you know, like that's really, you know, whatever. So I I, I think it just comes down to that, that there is inherently matched in, in the fact that one's a visual language and the other one's a visual medium. It's, it, 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 it's, it doesn't even have to be dancing. It could just be like slight movement to a song. Like well, I, that's what I we call like, dancing. Uh, you know what I meant? I really don't. You little rascal. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, I'm going Slight to reference... movement to a song. That sounds like resisting to dancing if you're going the other way. Well, like, um, ooh, I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to do it. Ross Perot? Yep. Are you Dana not, Carvey's Ross Perot? Not going to do it. Not, not going to do it. it. Oh, boy. I'm, I'm showing my age here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but um, what I was referring to was randomly uh, the small part of uh the martian where matt damon is playing somebody i think jessica chastain's character's old cds which back when those were a thing uh and he just starts like moving his head and his shoulders a little bit and it's just so delightful yeah uh and yeah. i yeah. think a, another really random thing i'll say really quick <laughs> about this topic because i'm i am endlessly fascinated by this phenomenon uh i think Okay, you know the concept about evolution, right? Where, like, when... What? You know, I know, right? It's not made up. Uh, but when, <laughs> you know, any sort of mammal or anything uh, has something that happens to it externally, then later on, generations are, you know, almost... 
weirdly coincidentally now having, you know, whatever you call it. They're born with things that are actually copacetic with those environments or with those, you know, whatever, um, and how that kind of changes over time. I think, and maybe this is like a weird spiritual thing of me and cinema just being two buds, uh, but I also think that our our reaction to something like that actually harkens back to the history of movies, which is before movies were a thing, you know, our our release and form of entertainment was the stage show. It was this vaudeville style, you know, song and dance or whatever. So I always feel like, you know, when that kind of happened on screen, it's almost like this, like you feel it in your genes because technically speaking, that's what entertainment was before the movies and that's what movies superseded. So it almost becomes this weird, like ghost echo of the past where we instinctively know how to respond to it because... I mean, we come from a long line of people who that's all they used to watch. So that's, you know, that's my crazy theory. But Right on. I like that theory a lot. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to go into final ratings, and uh, I will start, if that's all right with everybody. Okay, sure. Yeah, why not? (laughs) I'm getting. Go ahead. So I, I'm a fan of Silence of the Lambs, and I definitely will be watching this again, uh, maybe around the same time next year in this fall climate, hopefully not as COVID-y. We'll see. And uh, I'm a fan. Three and a half out of five for me for the Silence of the Lambs. Wonderful performances, uh, especially for the top three players in this. Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins and Scott Glenn, I think all are giving different and unique performances, uh, and they all are good for different reasons. And I was just a fan of the way that they portray their characters on screen, but also how the film moved through start to finish and was not as married to just following through a plot line. Uh, especially in this era where I think a lot of films uh, were not as interested in character stories and were more interested in, in plot lines. And, and, and uh, that's not 100% true, obviously, but um, seeing the way that this film goes from start to finish and, and the way that we begin and end in similar places, I feel like, even though there obviously is some growth for all the characters other than Hannibal Lecter, who's the same person. Uh, I just think this is a, a, an interesting, unique look at this this world. And, and I'm a huge fan of it. But I also feel like I'm not as huge of a fan as a lot of other people are. And it might take a couple more viewings for me to get to that next step, especially after a lot of the things that both Anna and Nick have said that uh, have really made me think more about other aspects of this film. So I'm a fan and it's three and a half out of five for me for the silence of the lambs. Me? Okay. Yeah. And any, any one of you guys, well, me and uh, we're, we're going to have nobody. Me and Anna have our video on, whereas you don't. So we are doing yeah. a, a visual dance of you, you, me, me. Anyway, <laughs> which I mean, which I mean, which now I realize it doesn't translate well audio, but like effectively, Nick and I were just doing you or me, you yeah. or me, just for a few moments there. <laughs> oh, that's great, oh, brother. 
sorry to leave you out of that, Alex. No, I'm 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 leaving. Bye. Oh, see ya. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my final ratings is that I would give this four and a half out of five. I think it's uh, fantastic. I think it's so easy to kind of like much like the men uh see Clarice in her workforce i think it's so easy to undervalue what this movie has to offer because i think that at the heart of it what's interesting is we're in this society we're conditioned to think that a movie in this kind of genre has nothing to offer more than something tantalizing and something uh on on the realm of being a spectacle but in actuality, there's there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of great uh, work being done by the actors, by the director, by the cinematographer. Uh, I think uh, Tak Fajimudo or something like that. I probably butchered that, but whatever. I was doing it offhand. Um, but everybody here is giving their A game and is kind of really smuggling in a much denser picture uh, than I think it seems from the outset. And I think part of that's the whole. Uh, tied in part and parcel with the whole, you know, trajectory of the narrative, which is trying to get into the mind of, you know, this uh, these killers, and in this case, this movie, and trying to think what it uh, is actually thinking. And I think there's value there, uh, you know, deep within if you do a little bit of homework. And I, I overall, I'll just end it by saying that, well, I don't think that we learned enough from this movie because I feel like a lot of its imitators and, and uh, you know, uh, descendants learned all the wrong things from it. Um, I will always love the fact that this exists in its form and still holds up today, I think, as being a genuinely horrific film, uh, oftentimes for what goes unsaid than what is actually shown. So, uh, four and a half out of five for me for The Silence of the Lambs. And, uh, you know, if you haven't watched it or rewatched it in a while or if you think it's, you know, grown stale, all I can say is wake up, sheeple. Uh, okay. What what a send off. What a send off. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um so my rating for Silence of the Lambs um I do give it four and a half out of five. Um gosh, there's so much of this film that I truly did like and it was uh, tough for me to pick out things that I didn't like about it. Um, one of the fun facts that I read about this, um, it was, mm, I wanna make sure I get this correctly. Um, the FBI was actually pleased that this film was centered on Clarice Starling because they wanted to recruit more female agents, which is, um, I'm not sure if this film actually had that effect but i think it did um i think the one-two punch of this and the x-files uh with uh dana uh, scully is like yeah. one of the greatest like uh, female representation of uh, in that uh, bureau but anyway yeah no it is a uh, it's super cool and especially since um x-files also came out in the same decade 
um, portraying women in such a positive role in that caliber of a position is super awesome. Um, and then I do think it's super cool that um, <clears throat> throughout this film, Carice does have her BFF, who's also a female on the force, um, or rather as a student too. Um, and they just do nothing but support each other and try to uh, solve the case. And I think that is super awesome. Um, <clears throat> this was uh, talked about at length in the episode, but uh, resident woman, I just really do um, like how um, throughout the film, it was a point of contention that this happens often to Clarice, how she is, um, for lack of a better term, underestimated, one, because she's a student, two, because she's a woman, um, for um, the position that she's in and she ends up uh, defying all those expectations and just focuses and does her job. Um, and I think that uh, as I was watching the film, first of all, it made me, it made me kind of wonder how much of that was um, at the discretion of the screenwriter and also the director and also how true that is to the book. Um, I'm curious to see how, how that truly is when it comes to the character of Clarice Starling. Um, but I think that is, um, it gives such a, a poignant um, focus specifically for that character because she does constantly um, have to quote unquote prove herself in uh, this field that is largely male dominated and all she wants to do is her job. And she even gets... Um, uh, she even gets, um, quote unquote, like criticized by Lecter uh, for her appearance and her uh, decorum and her West Virginia accent and her cheap shoes. And oh, my God, coming from Dr. Lecter being told you have cheap shoes. How mean is that? And he's a cannibal. Like, that's oh, my God. Oh, um, don't get me started. Truly, like that upset me. Like watching this, like that was definitely one of the first moments of the film that truly upset me. Oh, well, now we know how to cut right to the bone with Anna. <laughs> um. So, um, I think this film, uh, uh like portrayed um that specific part of Clarice's character as well as um the screenwriting in um uh a very um. A very good way a nicely packaged way um i did mention a lot of the cinematography choices i thought were so cool and they very easily could have been something that um was jarring to the viewer and truthfully they were very seamless um specifically when clarice is one-on-one -on -one speaking with somebody um i also thought one of the better shots uh as was mentioned before the uh, night vision sequence toward the end when it comes to the final showdown with her and Buffalo Bill. Um, and then um, I also liked how um, Catherine is so good when it comes to luring Buffalo Bill um, and uh, luring uh, him to the well by using um, uh, his dog. Precious. I Exactly. I thought that was that was so good because this um, like when I always get so worried when films introduce a pet, especially a domesticated animal, because either they're going to be there for a visual, they're going to be as a plot device. 
including as a plot device or they're going to die. And I get, I get so uneasy and so uncomfortable. Um, one of the most, um, one of the more jarring shots to me is when Catherine just wants to go inside and she ends up helping Buff Buffalo Bill with his couch. And then the cat is in the window wondering where Catherine went. Um, that made me sad. Um, I felt the same way. I huh? felt the same way. I felt like that cat was going to die of hunger and it killed me. See, that made me, that really upset me. So, um, but I'm glad that Precious made it out okay. And then, of yeah, course. Yeah, see, here's the only thing, though, that's really fucked up. That about dog that was scene. fucking complicit. No, no. No. Uh, as, as we see with Buffalo Bill specifically, well, beforehand, but then also uh, his feeling towards the end. That guy cares way more about that dog than he does about any other human being other than himself. Which That's is actually really uh, uh, an actual diagnosable trait in uh, yes. sociopaths yeah. and psychopathy. That's why um, they actually made it a point to do that in The Sopranos, where the first episode he's obsessed with the uh, Tony's obsessed with the ducks in his mm. uh, pool. Yep. Well, I will say that does have a great payoff, though. Then. Because I do love that even though she is threatening that to kill the dog and, and harm him in that way, um, she does save the dog, which I feel like she's saving the dog in two ways, which is wonderful. Yeah, I do agree that the payoff is definitely wonderful. And I was, and thank you for making that point for me because I was getting there. I just I didn't want to forget to bring up the, the heroes of this film, which are the cat and the dog. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, um, four out of five star, four and a Whoa. half stars. I was say. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Two going on here. Um, and I also like. I think I mentioned previously. I love um the twists and the turns that the journey of the journey, the plot this of black. I love the journey this movie takes us on with all the twists and turns of the plot. Okay. I. I really quickly want to add before we wrap the whole episode up that I checked Wikipedia and first of all, I got the cinematographer's name right, which I think is actually blowing my mind. So yes, it is Tak uh, Fujimoto. Uh, but also, I want to shout out that this movie didn't come out just in February. It came out on Valentine's Day, 1991, oh. which I think is actually probably contributable to its success, which is, you know, a movie like this, which I think is just so good. If it happens to end up being the de facto date night movie, you know what I mean? It just becomes that word of mouth thing. So I thought that's that's a pretty brilliant uh, ploy uh, marketing wise, I think. Yeah, that's really great. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right on. So if you out there have any thoughts on the Silence of the Lambs or any other Hannibal properties, always feel free to send them on to us at Film Tank Show at gmail.com. You can also try your hardest to find us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. Also, you can find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com or also on Apple Podcasts or also Stitcher or Spotify or other places where podcasts um, can be found as we are on quite a few of the services. Not sure what our next episode will be, but uh, it'll be coming up here. It's going to be a good one, though. And... Oh, aren't they all? I mean, come on yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, we've we've had some, we've had some very clear. All the ones with me on the way. are pretty good, I think. Actually, 
the more I think. You've been on every episode except for one, so. Oh, then that one was shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He kind of set me up for that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. You know what? That's that's fine. I'd like to think that we would collectively feel like at least 75% of our episodes are somewhat worthwhile. Yeah, no, no, I would actually say that that's about what I would think, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. As well, a listener, my positivity view of you guys is 100% of every episode I've listened. Oh, to be fair, really? you have skin in Where the game now. <laughs> I also generally, like, as a person who hates the sound of my own voice, I wait until a long-ass time to listen to episodes I've been on, so... Yeah, well, that's fair. I, I'm the same way. So... But anyway, well, didn't mean well. it. No, 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 you're, you're, you're good. So from okay. Anna Bodizadu, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diegman, as always, thank you very much for listening to us here at Film Tank. Look forward to talking with you next time. Goodbye, Clarice.